Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Um, this is another Phantoms uh, discussion and I have with me uh, Ben Stenson. Do you want to say hello Ben? Morning everyone. So this edition that's currently in print has a little bit of a, a from my reading of it, there's a there's sort of two common themes that sort of come out to them. There's some interesting things at the end and really those common themes are uh, laryngeal masks and how to conduct research studies seems to be the, the the focus of things. So laryngeal masks, um, I know that there's there's a, a, a very good review that we, you've commented on and, uh, and, and a letter to the editor, which is a very lovely uh, case series. Um, what are your thoughts on, I mean, laryngeal masks have been around for a long time. There've been a number of studies already in them. What are your, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the growing enthusiasm for, for this type of um, intervention? So specifically here, I guess we're talking about the use of laryngeal masks to administer surfactant. And obviously that's in the context of a growing popularity for the use of laryngeal masks in general as an airway adjunct because of the increasing difficulty with inexperienced operators getting good quality training in endotracheal intubation. So it's pretty clear that clinicians can learn to use laryngeal masks and can provide secure airways with them. So it's natural that people should think about using them to administer surfactant. And so it, um, the review summarizes the small trials that have been done. And uh, the, the letter is, is a case series describing the um, experience in real life of doing it. It's supported by a really nice video, yes, which I would encourage people to have a look at because it really gives you a much better understanding of the realities of the procedure than reading a few sentences of text about it. Um, the difficulty will be how to know whether it's as good as or superior to other methods for giving surfactant. Whilst laryngeal masks are easy to apply, just as with other airway um, interfaces, you do get some leak around laryngeal masks. So if you put surfactant into your laryngeal mask, there is a risk that some of it will leak out uh, or even all of it. In the hands of this team in Glasgow who report their series, that didn't appear to be a major issue. The, the masks don't go down to a small enough size for the yes. most vulnerable infants. And obviously they'll need to be researched specifically in that group once they do. I guess the difficulty for researchers is in the more mature babies who are the sort of size for which you could use a laryngeal mask airway, the adverse outcomes of RDS are relatively infrequent. Mm. So to do trials powered on really important outcomes uh, would be, they would be prohibitively large. So we're going to end up needing trials that simply look at the time course of the RDS, the number of infants who need retreated and things like that. I think there's a, a bit as when Lisa came in, people need to recognize that however you give surfactant, a significant number of infants will need a second dose. And that was true when we were giving prophylactic endotracheal surfactant. And it's just as true with Ensure 
and Lisa and laryngeal masks. So we mustn't see need for retreatment necessarily as evidence that the, the initial treatment wasn't applied appropriately, but um, trying to gain some sense of relative risks of that kind of thing is going to be important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this particular area of, of administration is is very exciting because you can definitely see the benefits of having a baby needing some surfactant, um, not traumatizing the airway um, um, and being a relatively straightforward method of providing the, the surfactant. Um, I guess my concerns are that, I mean, from what I've read in, it was Callum Roberts from Monash in Melbourne, his review, um, there are 350 infants that um, that have been included in trials so far. That's, that's from my quick reckoning, that's um, six studies in total, two versus the laryngeal mask and CPAP and four with a comparison with endotracheal tube. That's 350 patients and um, none of those, the smallest, I think that, that Joyce O'Shea's, that's the, the letter that was published, has reported greater than 1,200 grams. And I think from my reading of it, that's still the smallest cohort that has been published. I think in Callum's uh, review, it was 50, about 1,500 grams. So that still those very small babies are, are, are perhaps the babies that would benefit most from the technique, but yet are the babies that have yet to be um, included in any of the studies simply because, and I, I know I, I have no pretense that manufacturers listening are listening to our podcasts, but perhaps somebody is, that, that the manufacturers of, of laryngeal masks do not make anything smaller. Um, and um, that, that's a, a deficiency. It seems like a great technique, but in a population that still can't actually receive it. And that's, I guess that's just a little bit disappointing at the minute. I, I would hope that in the future, we would have the opportunity to, to use um, this potentially airway saving technique in the babies whose airways are actually the most vulnerable and the most difficult to, to intubate. Yes, I agree. Although it's interesting because colleagues have expressed concern to me that LMAs are relatively large compared to the overall oropharynx and mm. worry that as we go down to smaller infants and, and still need reasonably large devices, might they have other unintended if, effects such as hemodynamic effects Yeah, just in terms of the amount of room. So I'm not sure we can be sure that the experience with using LMEs in smaller infants once they're available will necessarily be the same. Of course, um, but um, I, I guess that's why we do the we do prophylactic um, or or sorry prospective trials. Is 350 patients to me is still you know there's still a, a safety question to be um, to, to be to be answered whether they are absolutely safe. And as we get smaller and smaller, and people will want to to push the boundaries, making sure the introduction of these devices um, in the right way is done in the safest way. Oh, I agree. And um, it's an easy thing to do. So it's the kind of thing that people just get on with. The, and, and neonatologists are people who love doing stuff. So there'll be an army of people who want to just simply implement this. And um, it's just the kind of circumstance where clinical practice overtakes research evidence. Callum Roberts and Joyce O'Shea are involved in trying to 
deliver a larger randomized controlled trial of these techniques. And the protocol is called Surf's Up. Uh, so uh, presumably that reflects the Australian origins of the of the, the investigator. In, in fairness, the uh, the uh, surfactant to uh, late preterm babies that um, Professor Boyle and Lester has uh, has started is called Surf's On. So I'm not sure it's necessarily an Australian obsession with 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 surfing. Yeah, fair dues. I will try and find that and make sure it's attached to the podcast so people can and have a, can have a look. And I know that that Joyce and Callum have mentioned it in their various Twitter feeds, so people can can perhaps have a look at that as, as well. And that sort of neatly takes us on to this, this the other uh, focus of the Phantoms and the Journal with regarding consent and um, research trials and two studies that that appear uh, and an editorial by uh, Professor Modi um, looking at. Two different types of, I suppose, retrospective consent, if you want to, um, or deferred consent or opt-out consent, um, if you want to collate them. Is this the is this the future, Ben? Is this is this where we're going? Well, for some kinds of research, I think it has to be. And all of us who are involved in neonatal research recognise the difficulties of approaching parents with complicated information about research participation within a very short time of their babies just being born whilst their heads are spinning. And understandably, um, ethics advisory committees can be quite protective of parents and babies. But all of us involved in caring for these babies recognize that the babies are greatly harmed by lack of research as well as by, as well as there being a need to protect them from uh, involvement with complex issues when, when they've got enough other other things on their mind. And um, there's this growing evidence of acceptability of research to patients, and um, including these um, approaches which involve enrollment without prior consent, when you're doing what you might call comparative efficacy studies of treatments that are widely, widely used, but people don't know which is best. And um, we can't move forward with our evidence base to give babies the best possible treatment if we don't get more babies into studies. So these papers and editorial just reinforce this theme that's been recurrent over the last year in the journal about the need to normalize research. One of the most exciting things to me about the study and the articles is the neonatal service that was comparing um, prospective with deferred consent, there were lots of parents in their study whose babies in fact had been enrolled in both studies with prospective consent and studies with um, deferred consent. And um, some babies had been involved in a great many studies. And in fact, the maximum number was seven. And in the unit at the time, there were 17 different research protocols going on. And I just think that's so fantastic. What a flag, flagship for developing neonatal care that is. Um, and how we've really got to get to the point when everyone thinks we should be doing research. It's a normal part of our care. It's a responsibility to make our care better. And patients should worry if they're in units where they're not being asked to um, be involved in, in in research studies. And um, I think that's the point that Nina Modi is making in his uh, 
in her editorial that, that we've really just got to get this process normalized better and um, greatly improve access to research in the interests of patients. Yeah, it really strikes at the, the, the argument that um, it is almost unethical not to enroll some of these babies in, in, in research or certain uh, comparative effectiveness studies um, when we know certain um, treatments are potentially available and the reason we don't use them or babies will benefit from them is because that, you know, we have this cumbersome um, process of obtaining perspective and, and I like the line that in in the, the phantoms that um, uh, where it says that part of effective studies of accepted treatment randomization should become the standard of care supported by opt-out as the default consent process and I think that 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 makes a lot of sense it's certainly looking at the the, the parental responses and they were very very high I mean they were 97 92 and 89 percent that using a, a a treatment that is being tested as being safe and, and, and valid, but uncertain about what the what the, the degree of benefit a parent would, would appreciate that their that their child has had the opportunity to have a, a safe treatment that uh, is being compared to another treatment. Um, and then if they are unhappy, they can, they can opt out. Perhaps that's me being paternalistic, but I think it's certainly, you know, if we use that as a model of care and then do our comparisons um, with the consent taken afterwards that that makes a lot of sense to me and and doesn't ethically jar anything well it makes sense to the parents too as they report in this study again as i say people should be worried about places where research isn't happening and um again because neonatologists are good at getting on with stuff it leads to a circumstance where it's far easier to just change your practice in the way you want and just start doing something new without putting it through any research than to do a ethics advisory committee approved prospective research study. Yeah. And this is why so many of our national guidance ends up being boiled down to expert consensus based on low levels of evidence. And we're stuck in that unless we achieve this paradigm shift. Absolutely. And and I think, and as you say, parents seem don't seem to there was a high approval for the various for the various options and similar to prospective consent. So hopefully within research becoming embedded in people's practices that, that this will be a future. Um, so in the, in the phantoms there are also two just in, very just interesting sort of articles, ones related to um, delivery room um, research and is uh, Peter Borland's study on uh, monitoring ECG afterbirth in babies with delayed cord camping. Now this was a this was this study didn't have a comparative arm that I could tell is that right? The delayed cord clamping study yes it was just observational uh, yeah. data of the changes in heart rate after birth and it's just interesting because the observations are so different from the historic observations that are in the literature in relation to heart rates after birth during transition. Yeah, uh, and I think the, um, the, the authors compare those historical um, comparisons are to Jennifer Dawson's paper, which having disproved that I at least scanned through the paper before our conversation, Ben, is reference number three in the, the, the Borland article. So comparing 
those heart rate adaptions um, and those centile charts in a presumed uh, non-delayed cord clamping cohort with this modern cord clamping cohort. And the thing that struck me was that um, it happened a lot, a lot faster than I had had uh, that I'd anticipated. To be perfectly honest, and perhaps that's my skewed having been at more cord clamped deliveries than delayed cord clamped deliveries over the course of my career. But um, it seemed to happen um, quite quickly, and I think the centile charge will be useful for people um, as they start to attend, and perhaps will be will, will find um, pride of place where the the, the Dawson. Um, SPO2 uh, uh, centiles have, have made their way in various ILCOR guidance. Well, um, the interesting thing to me is that these, these data are gathered from humans. They match the animal data. They explain to people why you can receive a baby apparently deeply cyanosed and bradycardic and difficult to stabilize, who the midwifery attendants say, had a normal heart rate up to the moment of birth. And that's because they did. And that the process of immediate cord clamping more or less eliminated the venous return to the heart, greatly increased the systemic vascular Mm. resistance, forced the baby to rely on breathing for oxygenation at a time when the lungs were full of fluid and completely unrecruited, and began a period of severe hypoxia and low cardiac output that could only be resolved by gradual recruitment of the lungs and provision of a new pathway for the circulation. And um, immediate cord clamping actually causes a need for additional intervention. And these data just further reinforce that. So it's it's just a nice demonstration of in humans of the observations that so many authors in the journal in recent years have been demonstrating to us in their studies of transition. I, I think it's it, it's data that should be really influential in people's thinking. Yeah, and it, it's nice to have some. I like I like I like centile charts. I'd like to know where where things ought to be, and the fact that there is a normal in in human biology. There is a, a a wide variety of what is normal, and and I think this sort of reinforces that in. A, a modern population of, of babies that are being born and being managed in that way. So I think it'll be very useful for people. And I'm glad it's, it's made its way into print. Um, and the, the, the last paper that you, you mentioned is something that just pricked my interest and was diazoxide and necrotizing endocolitis. And this is a study from uh, uh, Laura Prado and colleagues in Toronto, I believe, looking at babies who required diazoxide for um, hypoglycemia. And what struck me was that they were, they were all quite, they were smaller than I, um, certainly my own personal practice would have used diazoxide for. So I find it an interesting read from that point of view. But uh, the, the the GI effects and the association with neck was also something that, that I wasn't quite expecting. So it was, it, it was something I find very interesting, not having really thought about it before. Um, was that your your you find it striking? Yes, I did. And um, in in my observation over the years, I've been involved with neonatology. For some reason, I can't fully explain. We seem to have more infants with prolonged problems with persisting hypoglycemia than we used to have in the past. 
whether that's simply that we're better at identifying them or some aspect of, of the way we care for babies, which gets them into a cycle of hyperinsulinism that they can't get out, I'm not sure. But the end result is that we have more babies weaning very slowly from feeds, getting endocrinologists involved, having diazide oxide treatment proposed than we had in past years. And one of the groups of babies who get this problem are growth restricted, late preterm infants, and they can be ready for discharge planning, but for their persisting need for high glucose rates. And the enthusiasm for giving babies diazide oxide before they've yet reached term has been growing a little. So the whole development of diazoxide treatment, which appears to be very useful, is anecdotal and the precise risks and benefit are uncertain. And this is just highlighting a greater level of uncertainty than we had before, but particularly in these babies who are not yet at term and who you might therefore argue the hurry for discharge um, might not be so great. Yes, um, I mean, it's um, the interesting thing is the um, there's the IEGR babies that are, aren't quite quite making it in terms of their, their growth and their physiology, and they're slowly making their way towards term. And if they have diazoxide, you just wonder, are there underlying metabolic um, derangements that are correcting themselves as they accelerate towards term that aren't quite um, aren't quite ready, and then diazoxide upsets it. But I, I, it, it is something that um, that hadn't really, um, I just hadn't thought about. But it's certainly something that's it's interesting, and it would be interesting to hear what other people think about this as 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 a practice, uh, and whether this has been resonates with their own experience. It's it's certainly been a very interesting read. Well, it's another exciting area for research, and I'm really happy that in the last few years, the amount of prospective research in relation to glucose homeostasis in the newborn, both preterm and term, methods for measuring, approaches to controlling, etc., is going up and up and up. And this is another huge area of anecdotal practice um, that has persisted for decades in neonatology and is likely to benefit greatly from research models which in, encourage greater research participation. Absolutely. Well, Ben, thank you very much for, for the discussion. Um, it's been a very enjoyable discussion. As always, people can, uh, it'd be great to hear what people think and they can interact with the journal uh, via the website, um, via the various uh, social media handles, including Twitter uh, at ADC underscore FN uh, and my own Twitter handle uh, Jonathan underscore Davis 3 and Ben's Twitter handle which is at Stenson Ben um, we had a I don't know if you noticed Ben or you you, you check your Twitter very often but um, we were sent a picture of, of somebody walking their dog while listening to our podcast a, a, a colleague of yours from, from Glasgow Colin Glasgow yeah Colin yeah. Peters yeah was walking his dog while listening to the to the podcast which is always nice that we're a uh, you know, educating as people are walking their dogs and things in the morning. So, um, yeah, people feel free to send us when you're when you're looking and listening to to the podcast. Yeah, we can get a, a photo gallery of what people are up to while they're listening to our, our podcast. Yeah, keep it clean, folks. Keep it clean. Um, so, thanks, thanks, thanks very much, Ben, and uh, I look forward to uh, the next conversation. Okay, talk to you again. <laughs>